Elrod, what's up? Um, happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. It's been a busy week since the last time we we, we did the show. I feel like today is Thursday. Does it was Thursday? It feels like it should be Thursday. It's only Tuesday. These weeks are um, in Trump land. These weeks go by like months. The day feels like a week. Days feel like weeks. The week feels like two months. But in, in the I guess since the last la- our last show, uh, Bernie Sanders um, announced he'd raised ten million dollars in a in a week. Five point six million in twenty four hours online. It's a staggering amount of money and very impressive and. You know, the other thing that I heard of, that I saw was that he's, a lot of the money is coming from um, new email addresses. Like, these aren't just folks that they've tapped from 2016. These are new uh, new people who are part of the, the, the campaign. Yeah, look, it's impressive. And I got to say, especially in this packed field that is only growing by the week, it seems, um, this is, you cannot underestimate the significance of how much money Bernie raised compared to his uh, counterparts in the primary so far. Of course, fundraising, grassroots online fundraising is his strength, but it does not appear that this strength of his has been diluted due to a more crowded field. He still has, uh, I think he still he still has a go, he has a ways to go in terms of building that winning coalition for a nomination. I think we saw he had a potent message in 2016, but he just couldn't put together a, a diverse coalition. Uh, and right. that ultimately cost him uh, the nomination. Um, and it'll be interesting to see in the second go around whether or not he has uh, figured out uh, how, how to appeal to people of color. Yeah, and the question becomes, is he able to do that this time around? And again, with more people running, um, several of whom are diverse themselves, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, to name two of them. Castro. Um, Castro, of course. I think it's going to be that much harder for him to diversify his coalition beyond what he has before. But you know what? It's early on, right? It is. There's a lot can happen. So today, first of all, everyone, thank you for joining Joining us at the Electables, I'm Doug Thornell. I'm joined by my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod. Hello. And we've got a special guest uh, for you today, a good buddy of mine, uh, Jamal Simmons. Jamal is a host now on Hill TV Live. Uh, He has a bunch of different um, uh, shows he does for them. Uh, But before that, he was a Democratic strategist, one of the best in the business. He has worked for um, President Clinton, for Vice President Gore. He has worked at the DNC. He was the press secretary for Bob Graham's campaign and for Wesley Clark's pet campaign. He's worked on the Hill. He's really done it all. I could spend five minutes going over this guy's uh, impressive resume, but He's one of the. It's 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 gonna. It, we're really lucky to have him, and really looking forward to having a conversation with him about sort of what's going on in this race as he sees it, and also his background and what he's done on and and sort of his experiences on a presidential campaign. So Jamal, welcome to the Electables. Welcome, Jamal. Thank you. And for the record, I think I'm a friend of Adrian's too. I was going to say not just not just okay. Doug's, also Adrian's. He's a friend of everyone. Everyone loves Jamal. That's yeah, true. Right. That's not true. How's yeah. how's Hill TV going? <laughs> Go ahead. How's Hill TV going? Uh, Hill TV is great. We have uh, we took off about uh, let's see, we, the first show launched in June, um, and we have started having a bunch of people on. We've got a lot of really great interviews that we've done, and we now get uh, somewhere between two hundred fifty three hundred thousand people are watching every week. 
which is a pretty good number. For That's digital. very impressive. Yeah. Great. Um, so congratulations. It's like we're moving that through like all the social platforms, and people are watching clips and all that stuff, which is really good. And so we're we're excited. Do, so this is, and maybe you don't know this, uh, but um, I'm wondering with, do you know the breakdown between the people who watch on just a traditional like desktop computer versus a mobile device? Do you have any? Oh, idea? it's mostly mobile. Mobile, right? Yeah, That's because most of it's happening. People find us through Twitter or through Facebook or you know those posts, and then that's how they see the first clip, and then they'll go back and try to find something else. That's so fascinating. That's really the model, which is you know, which is really good. Which is great. How's yeah. the transition been from uh, operative strategist to now journalist? Really, I mean, uh, yeah, opinion, uh, opinion journalist, opinion journalist. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to ever prove this myself as somebody who has to be fair. Uh, because, you know, <laughs> I like Democrats. And everybody knows it. Um, I think uh, that, that's been fine. The hard part really is uh, doing all the hosting stuff is, a, is much harder than it looks. You know, I've been a guest, as you guys have, on a bunch of different shows for a long time. But when you're sitting there and you've got somebody talking in your ear and you've got a guest who's talking you're trying to listen to, you've got a question that's coming up next you've got to get to, like there's a lot of things happening. The clock is running, so you know you only have so many seconds to go. Do you have enough time for a new question? Do you just let them ramble on for a little bit? There are all sorts of things you're trying to manage, and it's the management that's been like. And I will say, as somebody who you know d- does television, just having somebody in your ear saying "rap" yeah. or you know like, that's distracting enough. So I can only imagine how, like the challenges of, of being a host, and you know all the all, to the point you just made, all of the different you know things you've got to consider and the time clock and somebody talking to you in your ear and trying to decide which guest to go to and how to moderate. Sometimes they, they, they suggest good questions for you, but a lot of times, sometimes they also suggest questions you'll never want to ask, (laughs) but they're like in your ear, like ask about fossil fuels, ask about fossil fuels. You're like, I don't want to talk about fossil fuels. I'm trying to ask them a question about, you know, something completely different right now. Right. Um, So that can be like the most annoying part when they're in your ear. Sure. Yeah. Totally. So, Jamal. Oh, so can I just say thank you? You guys, yeah. uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, I've been hearing about this electables thing. You guys are all over, like, Instagram. I feel like every time I open my phone, I see some post about what it is you all are up to. Um, and, you know, you two have been uh, involved in so many different asset aspects of campaigns. I feel like electables is the perfect title for this because you know how to actually elect people. Thanks, Thanks, Jamal. Buddy. Appreciate We're that. We're excited. Appreciate that. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. And yeah. I, yeah, it is different on the being on the other side, asking questions and, um, and you know, running a show versus being the guest. Uh, yeah. But you're doing a great job. We, lo- I love, I love, you know, watching your stuff and, Thank you. um, Thank and you. and it's and it's really blown up. So congrats on all that stuff. Thank you. And it's almost. I mean. It's not almost 2020, but it feels like it's almost 2020. There's such a – everyone <laughs> is so eager to get to 2020, right? Yeah. It's like we got to – what can we do to skip over 2019? Um, but there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, in, um, you know, obviously, during this primary. Uh, and before we get into sort of what's going on in the current race, I, I'd love to hear from you as someone who has worked on presidential campaigns before, both your experience but also for our listeners, you know, what is what what is a press shop – look like how is it built and give me a day in the life on a campaign for a press secretary or spokesperson you know as you guys know because you've been through this before um the primary election is so much different than the general election right if you make it to the general election it's like you're on a big you know a big luxury cruise liner (laughs) while you're (laughs) when you're in a primary it's like 
So one of the best uh, uh, titles I heard for a book someone wanted to write once was called One Car Motorcade, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just mm-hmm. like, you know, it's a minivan with a candidate, like a press aide, a body person, and like an advanced person or something, and or political person, like just in a minivan trooping through the snows of Iowa and New Hampshire and trying to meet. You're flying commercial. You're flying you commercial. You probably don't have Secret Service protection. Yeah, you're like yeah. going to some house where like some state representative or city council member with 15 of their friends are going to serve you bad bunt cake from the local grocery <laughs> yeah. store. You know, it's like, but you're excited because there are 15 people there when you right. show up and you're like, hey, what's going and on? You're also competing against your friends, right? I mean, we were, oh, you know, yeah. 2004, you were on West Clark, I was on Dean, there oh, were a yeah. bunch of folks that we had on, you know, there was people I knew on Gephardt and we were all ending up at the same bar in Des Moines, <laughs> it's right? True. But we're all buddies, we were all friends, it's and true. but, you know... You were, were going after each other like we're rabid dogs. Absolutely. You know? That's um, a big difference in the general. It is. It is. And so in the press, in the primary, it's, it's very small. Like I said, you know, there are only a few people kind of filling each job. As your campaign grows, it, it, it grows along with it. Um, and then by the time you get to the general election, you know, there's, there's all these different sections. There's the, the regional press shop, which is what I managed for, um, for Al Gore in 2000. When I first started, I was just an advanced guy for Bill Clinton. And then I, had, I managed the press charter. That flew around uh, with Bill Clinton everywhere he went in the fall of the campaign. Um, so you've got people who just have to fill all these. And I'll tell you that what's funny is when I was volunteering on campaigns when I was a teenager and in college, I had no idea that you could get paid to work on campaigns and do <laughs> yeah. these jobs. I didn't even know these jobs existed. I thought the yeah. only job was like the campaign manager job. I didn't realize that there were like 400 people who that were. it's an industry. <laughs> yeah, it's an entire industry of people on this campaign. Um but, you know, you've got to worry about who's, you know, one of the things we, we did when you're managing the regional press operation is you have to do press without the benefit of the candidate, um, which is very different than if you are working with the candidate every day, like I did for some of the others, and you're traveling around. Because when you're with the candidate, people call you all the time, and you're just basically playing defense. Which one do we want to do this week? What do we want to do today? You know, you've got some strategy about where you want to place going forward, but it's a lot easier for you to just call somebody in a big paper and do it. If, you're, if your job is to make news every place the candidate is not, you got to find some mayor in some town who's willing to do a healthcare event at the local clinic, you know, and then you got to make sure there's like at least one camera there and, like, you know, one photographer and one pencil from a news, you know, from a, a print organization. And you're just trying to get people to pay attention to anything because you're just trying every day to drive message and get people to pay attention. And I think that's the stuff that most people don't think about. It's not super sexy, but it's incredibly important to campaigns to make sure that you're constantly getting this flow of stories and news and message coming out of the organization. That's right. So, you know, I want to go back to something that the two of you just mentioned a while ago about so many people being on different campaigns, good friends working for, you know, various candidates like you guys did in 2004. I think you're seeing that certainly right now in 2018. How do you think that, tests friendships. I mean, it really is fascinating. We're seeing this on, you know, Kamala's campaign has hired a lot of people from Hillary Clinton's campaign that I worked mm-hmm. on in 2016 and 2008. Um, but, you know, there's also people who worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign who were on Kirsten Gillibrand's campaign and on various other races. Like, how do you think that impacts friendships or does it? Oh, I mean, how is, it's got to be kind of hard to work against 
your friends, right? Well, sometimes it does. I mean, sometimes there are people who fall out in the middle of a primary campaign. and every, It's like legendary. Everybody in the party sort of knows <laughs> <Okay>. about it, <laughs> right? Um, like they had a falling out in 2008 during the primary. <laughs> right. Spoken sense. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, it gets pretty you know, heated and personal sometimes. Um, but usually I think people try to um, – it's an intramural sport in the primary. It's not full contact. And so I think people try to – you know, withhold some of the full blow, full force of the blow against their friends and colleagues because you got to work with these people again. And one of these candidates is going to win. And theoretically, we'll all be working for that person. So, you know, right. you know, you're balancing out how much, how hard to go at any individual candidate or other staffer. Mm-hmm. And the primary is also much longer than the general election. I mean, these folks are competing for the nomination over the course of the next year plus. The general election is four months. Well, and you know, it was funny. So you mentioned I worked for Bob Graham in 2004 and that campaign, nobody really cared about. It was great in some ways because um, it was a, you know, quote unquote, second tier campaign. Um, and we, nobody paid that much attention to us. But so what that meant was everybody would talk to us all the time. So while John Kerry and John Edwards were sort of battling it out and Jim Howard Dean and they're all battling it out at the top, you know, the campaigns that, you know, the Bill Richardson campaign and the Bob Graham campaign we're just kind of like hanging out. We go to bars. We got to hang out with everybody. Um, the reporters would call. I kind of had this thing where, you know, you had like a little dish and I, I'd call a reporter and give him a nugget about one of the big campaigns and then try to use that as leverage to get them to include my boss <laughs> and whatever story they were writing about the, you know, the big, the big uh, article for the day. And so, uh, you know, they'd be six paragraphs of, you know, Howard Dean said this and John Kerry said that and John Edwards said this. And then they'd be like, and Bob Graham went to go meet with 15 people out of whatever. They're like, yay, we got to mention in paragraph 16 of a New York Times story. This is great. <laughs> it's true. You know, you just want to do anything to get your boss covered. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, you take off. And then at that point, people start paying attention to you who, you know, who didn't pay attention to you for some reason before that. Yep. How's uh, life on the road? You were, because you traveled with West, West Clark, right? Yeah, let me tell you, not just presidentials. I mean, you know, I did like a Senate race in Georgia sure. and I um, helped consult on some congressional races in 06. And, you know, uh, I was single then and so it was a lot easier. Probably mean I was single longer than I planned <laughs> on being single um, because, you know, you're just constantly, you know, on the road and talking to people and um, you're never in one place at any one time. Um, but I also find it to be really fun because I like to be on the road. I used to, you know, um, you know, you love a new hotel and like figure out like what the best new restaurant was to go to a place. And um, before my knees went bad, I used to jog a lot. So um, I'd always like get up in the morning and go for a run in whatever town I was in. Uh, but during the campaigns, you end up going back and forth to the same places. They're not that much fun, right? Like you're in some, I'm not going to call the name of a bad hotel brand, but like you're in some really ranked kind of hotel <laughs> In some small town in some state. I used and, to get so excited you know. when I was slated to stay at Hampton Inns. Oh, yes, exactly. Like, oh, that my God, I got a Hampton Inn, which, by the way, is a pretty great hotel. <laughs> and but that was a good one. Compared to some other hotels. Oh, yeah, I got stories. Nameless. Ooh, yes, ooh. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> that was a bad Red Roof, rent, red roof Inn story one time. Uh, <laughs> disgusting. Oh, man. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, and, and the other part you know, on that, I have been to hotels where uh, you've had to go to the all-night Walmart by flip-flops because you didn't want to be on the floor in the shower. Um. <laughs> <laughs> didn't want to touch the floor in the shower. Mice traps? <laughs> or I once bought like a, a bed and a bag, like, you know, like a sheets and a thing to cover over the actual bed that was um, in the hotel that we were in because 
it just looked so bad. Yeah. I just wanted a blanket so I could sleep on for the night. Yeah. So it can be pretty bad out on the road, but it's fun. I just remember when I, in 2004 when I was working for Dean, you know, by the sort of the first month, you'd wake up in cities and towns and sometimes you didn't even know where you were, right? Like <laughs> you would true. have to look at the notepad to figure out what city you were in because you had bounced from Iowa to New Hampshire to New York and back to maybe down to Florida all in one day. And it can be sort of like, I mean, you know, you're, you're twisted around. And then, you know, you're not eating well at no. all on these things. No. I mean, and, you know, I try Except to for Adrian. That. Adrian always seemed like she was, like, in perfect condition. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> you guys are, no, not true at all. But I, I, I'm, one of the, I'm the kind of person who, if I'm very stressed out and very busy, I just don't eat, which I know a lot of people tend to eat. So I actually tend to lose weight on campaigns, mm-hmm. but which is kind of sad right now because I'm not in a campaign and it's it's showing. But oh, nonetheless, nonetheless. Have, e- have either of you ever had a really embarrassing moment? <laughs> like something that something that you did that was that was like you just want to take it back. You wish it never happened. Oh, I'm I'm sure all there's of on, on a campaign. All of us yeah. have. Yeah. Oh so, my gosh. Uh, my first campaign when I was on the Clinton um, uh, campaign in the press charter, and it uh, it's the night before. Election day, so it's Sunday night actually. Elections on Tuesday, Sunday night. We're doing a twenty-four hour fly around all these different cities, and um, something happened. You guys will understand this. We get to the hotel. They, uh, there are more press traveling with us than they thought. More staff ends up traveling with us, some VIPs. So they move all the hotel rooms around. Instead of being in the staff hotel, they moved me to the press hotel, um, with because I was the press guy. So they moved me to the press hotel. Um, so what happens the next day? Nothing happens. Nobody, I don't get a wake-up call. Nobody comes to do baggage call to pick up my bag. None of my fail-safes work. I wake up, miss the plane. Oh. Oh, no. That's awful. <laughs> wake up. I mean, it didn't wait for you? As soon as I open my eyes, I realize, like, it's light outside. Like, yeah. you know, we were supposed to be gone at whatever time, 7 o'clock in the morning. It's light outside. So I pick up the phone. Uh, I call back to Little Rock, which was no cell Canada phones at this was. time, right? Uh, I had one. I had one like a satellite huge, phone. Yeah, it was like a big phone. <laughs> Zach Morris phone. Uh, it was the size of this red Solo cup. <laughs> um, it's in front of me, uh, and I call back to the. Uh, we're working for Didi Myers. I call back to Didi's office, and they tell me like, "Oh my God, you're alive!" I was like, "What are you talking about?" They're like, "They've been looking for you for like an hour and a half, and everybody's been calling, trying to figure out where you are. They didn't know if something happened." I'm like, "No, no, no, I'm alive, but I'm still in Philadelphia." They were like, oh, so then we're trying to figure out what to do. They're like, well, why don't you just get on a plane and come back to Arkansas? And so I sat there and I was like, I'm not going back to Arkansas. Like, I'm going to catch them. So I get on the phone with the scheduling, the, the travel people. We figure out I can't get to Cleveland in time, so we're going to hop ahead. I'm going to go to St. Louis. And so I, I rush to the airport. I get to the, I get to the plane. They fly, I fly to St. Louis. Karen Finney, who we all know. Karen Finney was uh, doing advance in St. Louis. She picks me up from the airport because she's a good friend. <laughs> she leaves her mm-hmm. site, comes to the airport, picks me up, drives me to uh, back to the, um, the hangar where they're coming in. And as I'm standing there, I, I kind of realize I've totally screwed this up. And so I uh, go and get a big magic, a big uh, poster board with a magic marker. And I write uh, staff this way on it. And I turn myself into a volunteer. So when everybody comes off the plane, I'm standing at the foot of the plane holding the staff this way sign. And uh, (laughs) what's funny is Bill Clinton, they didn't tell Bill Clinton that I was missing. They decided they wanted to wait to find out what happened to me so he wouldn't be distracted. So he gets off the plane and he sees me with the sign. And he just like kind of gives me this weird look. He's like, hi. I'm So he walks away. 
And then uh, Paul Begala's like, oh, my God, you're okay. And the trip director comes out of the plane and it's this whole thing. Um, and they looked at me and they finally, they realized, like, I had heard the trip director was really mad at me. Um, and she comes off the plane, she looks at me, and she just shakes her head and walks away. Um, and I keep going. I was told later that if I had not caught up with the plane, I probably would have never worked again. They would have never hired me again. Wow. <laughs> that is crazy. That's so, quite a story. Quite a story. So, Jamal, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, as someone who has worked for, you know, some, some you know, candidates who have led uh, in the polling during primaries, and mm. there's somebody who's worked for candidates who have not, you know, exactly been tier one candidates. Yeah. If you were advising in this cycle somebody who, you know, I don't want to name names, but somebody who, <laughs> you know, might not be. Somebody you know, with wiry hair from a small <laughs> northeastern state. Well, yeah, <laughs> but that, that person is actually doing pretty well right now. Um, if you were advising somebody, you know, maybe Kirsten Gillibrand, somebody who's polling anywhere between 1% to 3% nationally, maybe a little bit more depending on the polls, what would you advise her team to do in terms of getting press and getting attention? I mean, how would you advise that, you know, on cable news? How does she get her message out on cable news? I mean, Kamala Harris, for example, who's, you know, one of the top tier uh, leaders right now. This past weekend, I think she had three different interviews on MSNBC. Casey Hunt, um, Joy Reid, and I want to say somebody else did an interview with her. But, like, how do you get your message out if you're Kirsten Gillibrand to a larger audience when you're, you know, you're a tier two candidate? Well, the first thing I would say is I'm not sure getting all this press is helpful to all these candidates because I don't know that everybody is ready for it. Mm -hmm. It's a good point. (laughs) And so um, the first thing I would say is make sure you've done all your sort of blocking and tackling. I would think about this as sort of this is training camp season. You should be shooting free throws and, you know, running around, getting in shape, getting your legs in shape because it's going to be a long slog through this process. And a friend of mine likes to say – Donnie Fowler, who I think some of you know. Love um, Donnie. Donnie likes to say that uh, the thing about running for president in the beginning in the primary is uh, you got to get good enough, fast enough before you do yourself mortal harm. Yeah. And it's really Smart. easy to make a mistake that you then end up having to live with for a long time in the, in the rest of the campaign. So the first thing I would say is make sure you, you know everything you're supposed to be doing. Do you, you know, do you have policies that you believe in? Have you figured out? You know all the um, all the loose pieces of the person's life. Do they have you know have they done the research? You know, make sure all that stuff's right. Is the candidate ready to actually be you know on a stage and answer these questions? And I'm not sure every candidate has has passed that test yet. Um, so that's the first thing. And then you know the next thing is you gotta you know you gotta be creative if you're going to do some of these things. The thing is when people aren't paying that much attention to you, um, one what's helpful is. You can go, Kirsten Gillibrand can go to New Hampshire and walk around a diner and actually talk to voters. She can go to, New, to Iowa and, you know, go to a party dinner and actually get a chance to talk to delegates. Because remember, as you guys know, this is a delegate fight. Yes, um, it is. It's a delegate <laughs> chess game. Exactly. We're going to do an episode on that too, which I'm very excited about. So um, you can chase headlines or you can chase votes. And I would say at this stage, chase votes because – well, what happens is people get to know you and people find out that you're smart or you or you're, you care or you've got some vision they believe in or you're tough enough or whatever the thing is they're looking for. And then one day you're going to have a moment, maybe it's on the debate stage, maybe it's, you know, uh, something else will happen that you can do in the Senate and people will pay attention. And those voters who now know you will see you in a new light 
and or you'll start creeping up in the polls and nobody will understand why um and then it will pop i think people i think sometimes if you're just chasing um press attention you can find yourself doing things that are pretty goofy and they don't look so well in retrospect right right and you know there's also a little bit of a free there's freedom when you're you know, kind of a, if you want to use the term dark horse or someone mm-hmm. who's, you know. Oh, and raise money. I forgot. And, that's, and raise money. Because if you, that's the number one, raise money, hire good staff, and meet voters. Yeah, and, and have a good message. Yeah. Um, but I think for folks who are, some of these folks who are, you know, in, you know, might be polling at two, three, four, five percent and are labeled second tier, like there's some freedom there. Like you can go out and kind of just let her rip, right? Yep. I feel like sometimes folks who are the front runners are a little more reserved maybe are a little more cautious. And uh, certainly the pressure and the spotlight's much greater on the front runner for the folks who are in the middle of the pack. You know, it's not. And, but it provides them an opportunity to do things that are a bit more unorthodox and generate some heat on the campaign. Ultimately, I think you're right. I think probably most of these folks who are running are going to have their moment in the spotlight. It's who can seize it and really build upon it. Um, and it might also be an opportunity to... Um you know, tell your bad news stories in a, in a way that's compelling before the New York Times and the Washington Post start telling those stories for you. Right. I mean, one of the big challenges with, with, with candidates, especially ones who've run statewide, is they think because the biggest paper in my state covered whatever this scandal was or whatever this challenge was, that now it's covered. I don't have to talk about it anymore. But as Barack Obama found out, like it doesn't matter that the Chicago Tribune had done the story about the lobbyist guy who bought the house next door to the land next door to his house or whatever. Like the New York Times is still going to write that story, right. and they're going to put three reporters and researchers on it, and you know a whole team of people are going to track it down and get everything nailed. Um, and you're going to spend days like trying to figure it out. Uh, so, you know, if you've got something that you kind of you know is coming, it might be an opportunity for you to start working that in somewhere so that you don't have to get blindsided by it. Uh, what is your, th- what is your thought right now on, um, I'm going to move to the 2020 campaign. What's your thought right now on Elizabeth Warren, uh, in her announcement where she, where she said that she was not going to attend, uh, big, these big money fundraisers. Well, my first reaction is something that our friend Robert Gibbs said a long time ago that I always remember. Uh, TV stations in Iowa don't take credit cards. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so I, that, it raises the question of where is she going to get the money from? And maybe she's got a big, strong, low-dollar uh, fundraising effort that we haven't seen yet. Uh, and she's not, and she, she's not worried about raising big money. But, it, but even the best low-dollar donors still have large dollar donors and bundlers and people who raise money for them. Um, so I just, you know, I, I wonder if she uh, sort of cut her nose off to, you know, spite her face, um, spite her face. But, uh, you know, we'll see. Here's what I like about Elizabeth Warren. I think that she, like Bernie Sanders, have one thing in, that's going for them. Everybody knows what they care about. They know why they're running. They know what they're up to. They don't have to define themselves in the political marketplace. I think the other candidates are much more unknown and people are trying to figure it out. You know Elizabeth Warren wants to regulate the banks. You know she wants to find a way to sort of tilt the scales back to working class people. Now the question is, how does she do it? We'll have a debate about policy and, you know, we'll talk about her personal life and, you know, all that stuff. But at least she has kind of a defined 
position in the market of with a whole bunch of people running. You know, you got if you've got ten or fifteen people running, if you've got one slice of people or one person who has a really defined slice that people care about, I think that they have a strength in the in the game. Um, I think you raise I think you raise a really smart point, Jamal, because in this primary, especially with upwards of fifteen, potentially twenty, potentially more than twenty people running, you've got to find your constituency. That reliable set of voters, no matter where you go, who are going to stick with you, who are going to be with you. Some of those are based on demographic lines. Some of them are based on ideological beliefs. Um, And I think Elizabeth Warren, especially on income inequality and some of the, you know, some of the the banking legislation um, policies, which, of course, have a huge role in our party because (laughs) our party does not like we don't like big banks. Right. Especially our especially the left wing of our party. Um, you know, she's really been able to carve out, and she's been the leader on those on those issues too. So when she takes a, a stand on one of those issues, everybody else sort of falls suits or or sort of rallies their position around here. But I but I agree with you that I am, um, I admire her decision to um, you know, to not go after some of the big dollars and to try to create you know a level playing field among all of her donors. But in doing that, you're also limiting resources, and in this kind of primary. To what Gibbs, mm-hmm. you know, said, you know, you, you cannot, you, you can't take out, lo- you can take out personal loans, of course, but, right. you know, most, I don't think Elizabeth Warren that, is, right? is a very, you know, <laughs> she's not like walking around with, you know, a billion dollars in the bank, um, No, nor are most people. So it does surprise me that she would do that. And, you know, look, I think, I, you know, I want to talk a little bit about this Emerson College poll that came out a couple days ago pertaining to New Hampshire and where the field is there. Uh, Bernie Sanders is um is uh is leading the poll right now which is certainly not a surprise. Um I think we've got Joe Biden in second place, right? Just a narrow second place. Elizabeth Warren is at 9% in New Hampshire. I thought New Hampshire would be a state that she would almost definitively win. Now we're still a year away from the New Hampshire primary, a little bit less than a year away. But still, this surprises me because New Hampshire voters like to pick somebody from a neighboring state. Elizabeth Warren certainly fits the bill. Do you think it's a problem for her at this point that she's that much lower than Biden and Sanders, or do you think she's got time to catch up? And of course, now we know that she's not going to have probably as much money to catch <laughs> right. up as maybe some of these other guys in the race. Uh, it absolutely, girls. it absolutely could be a problem for her uh, because, as you said, she's from next door. And for those, for folks who haven't been to the really, I, I love New Hampshire. It's one of my favorite states to, to campaign in. I love um, it this summertime. Not <laughs> in the really summertime. And the fall, actually. And it's fall. beautiful when the mm-hmm. leaves change. Um, but, you know, if you're in southern New Hampshire, it really is like being in northern Massachusetts. You get the Boston media market. So they've been seeing Elizabeth Warren on television for a long time. And most of the population of the state lives in the southern part of the state, Manchester and the towns, you know, headed south toward Massachusetts. So uh, they should they should know everything they need to know, or at least know enough to be able to make right. a judgment. So either they've decided they don't want, they don't like her, or there are just some other people in the race they like more, um, right. and that that will give her the chance to impress people because either those people will fall aside in some way, or she'll do something that's impressive to them and they'll and they'll move. But it's amazing that uh, she is behind, she's behind that far. And I think going back to the delegates, which again we will dive into more aggressively in a future episode, but. It could be that her delegate concentration 
that she's going after will be in the southern part of the state. And I have not seen the breakdown of the poll, admittedly, but maybe in the southern part of the state she is doing better than she's doing um, in other parts of the state. And that's just not showing in the statewide poll. I don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Um, But, you know, uh, also in that poll was uh, Vice President Biden. And, um, gosh, I'm really wrestling with the Biden thing. Uh, I really admire Vice President Biden, and I think he would make a great president. I'm just not sure that he is built for the primary that's coming, right? The Democratic Party has changed so much since the last time he ran for office. I think he's got the widest uh, amount of popularity. I was in Dayton, Ohio for a friend's birthday party uh, two weeks ago, and everybody there, you know, was like, what's going to happen with Biden? When's Biden going to get in? Um, uh, The question I wonder is, they like him widely but how deep is it right like how Mm -hmm. deep is the love and we all know this like when you're in the middle of a fight it's the fur is going to fly hot and heavy and so people have to love you enough that they stick by you even when they find out things about you that they don't like um and you know i just don't know this we could be in the place where people decide they just want a winner they think biden's a winner they don't care about anything else they know enough or it could be that they realize maybe joe biden is you know not really the future oriented voice that democrats usually tend to gravitate toward. And a lot of these early st- polls have shown not necessarily that he is the only person who can take on Trump and, and beat him, which I don't think is the case, but the voters in the Democratic primary believe that um, in some, in not you know, not in overwhelming margins, but enough to, for them to say, you know, we do want to support a new face. We want do want to help support the future of the party, but we also want to win, and we do think, think that Joe Biden might be that one person who we think can beat Trump. Now, I think when you start seeing the debates, they're going to have a huge impact on yeah. the way people are thinking about this. And I think they might see some people emerge from the debates who they think, you know what, this person just needs a little bit more exposure, needs a little bit more um, you know, lift in the media, and I think that person might be able to take on Trump in the, in the general. But Right now, the um, electorate tends to believe that Joe Biden might be that only person, and that's why I think his numbers are so high. The question is, can he maintain that? Can he maintain it? We just don't know. I mean, look, this is the reason why we play the game. I'll tell you one thing that that does make me nervous, another thing that makes me nervous, is how long he's waiting to get in. And I feel like maybe there's something that's even uncertain in his mind about it because, you know, why wait? Like, get, like the, the, the game is afoot, as they say. <laughs> I, I agree, but I will say this. I do believe that he is the pretty much the only person, maybe Bernie Sanders as well, but of course he's now in. But I think <laughs> Joe Biden might be the only person who can afford to wait until the second quarter. Yeah. Just because of his name ID, just because, you know, you could wait for some other people to maybe make some stumbles and whatnot, and then here's like, you know, the, the, the you know, senior – Democrat from, you know, in the primary, not in terms of age, but just in terms of experience. <laughs> Maybe both ways. Maybe both. <laughs> um, getting in to sort of save the day, that could also be his his line of thinking as well. I think that's not a good line of thinking, but I do think that Joe Biden, based on his name ID, based on his fundraising ability, his wide network, his loyal team, who will be with him, and a lot of people on his team will either work for him or they won't. You know, yeah. they, sort of like the, the Hillary Clinton primary in 2016, yeah. a lot of us moved to Brooklyn and did that campaign because of her, because of our loyalty to her, because we wanted to see her win, not necessarily because we were dying to work in the 2016 primary. Right. Well, you know, and one thing for the strength of Joe Biden, I think, um, look, there, we talked about New Hampshire being kind of a home field advantage maybe for Elizabeth Warren. It also is for Bernie Sanders. So I think one of the two of them is probably going to win 
does the other one come in second? How close? And then who comes in after them? It matters. South Carolina, because of its large African-American population, may be a little bit of a home field advantage, at least in the media perception, for one of the African-American candidates. So Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, you would think one of them would have a leg up in winning South Carolina, except I think Biden Joe Biden mm-hmm. could actually either beat them or come in so close behind them that it looks like a win for him. Right. You know, he's been down there for so long. He's been vacationing down there with his family. Um, he's, he's been really working South Carolina ever since the 2008 campaign. Um, he never stopped going to South Carolina. Uh, so there's a real possibility that Joe Biden could surprise people. And look, I think if Joe Biden wins either New Hampshire or, or Iowa, and then he wins South Carolina, I think the nomination fight's over. Yep. I, don't, I don't know what else there is to do after that. Well, you just touched on, I think, a really important piece to the campaign that's important. That's the, um, you know, the role that uh, people of color, particularly African-Americans, are going to play in determining who this nominee is. And that's been uh, in the news a lot recently, obviously, you know, you have South Carolina, where 60% of the electorate likely will be African-American. But then you go to Super Tuesday, and you've got California, where there will be a significant number of African-American voters. And you've got Virginia. You've got Tennessee, Alabama. I think I'm missing one other state. On Super, is that on Super Tuesday? Okay, yeah. So, you know, th- those are going to be, you know, if, if you're not trying to win or at least speak to African-Americans right now, have an agenda that uh, appeals to African-Americans, you're making a huge mistake. And one thing I want to talk to before um, we break is and that does mean having staff. There we go. There we go. So did this I, did is I preempt you here. Yeah, this okay. is exactly where I want to go. Um, all three of us, I know, have you know, are, are real, you know, have been uh, strong advocates for greater diversity on campaigns, mm-hmm. uh, gender, racial, ethnic diversity. For a long time, it has been essentially an old boys club campaigns run primarily by white males. Yep. Uh, and then not only the campaigns run by white males, but also the consultant uh, world have, has been to- largely populated by, by white males at the media consulting pollster male um, level. And then now you've got digital, which is really not diverse. Yeah. So I just wanted to get your sense of how things, and Adrian, obviously yours as well, but we all know, you know, we're following these campaigns and developments, how they're hiring staff. I'd, I'd love to get your thought on, you know, how you're seeing the diversity this year around versus previous years. Uh, look, I think there are some hires that are being made that are good. Um, the question will get back to who the consultants are. And I'm just not sure of who people are hiring as their consultants. And for those of you who are listening, you haven't done one of these campaigns. Um, the staff matters a lot, but usually there's a consultant call where probably, what, 70% of the decisions get made. A lot of the execution decisions get made by staff. A lot of the strategic decisions get decided on the consultant call with all the candidate poobahs, like all their best friends from everything else they've ever done in their life. Um, so I, 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 wor- I worry that we're not going to see the level of diversity in the consultant world. Um, that we're seeing in some of the staff hires. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I look around, some people are doing some really interesting things. I think Cory Booker right now, to me, is running one of the smartest political operations of any of the candidates. Uh, he's got a woman named Tamia Booker who works for him, no relation, um, but who works for him, who has, you know, this week he's going to be down in Selma. He's like preaching a sermon uh, at the Bloody Sunday Selma March. Um, he was putting himself into state judicial races in Wisconsin, you know, two or three years ago. Um, He has just really been moving around a lot in a really compelling way. Um, 
there's some other things about Cory Booker that I think are going to be challenges for him. But I think from a political perspective, uh, he's got one of the best political operations um, out there. Yep. And Kamala Harris hires someone Adrian knows. Everyone calls him what Delegate Dave, right? He's one of the one of the most one of the strongest hires of the cycle. Yeah, for, for so, sure. So you know, in a delegate fight, she hired one of the people who knows how to count delegates better than you know just about anybody else in the party. And that, by the way, goes for the states and for the convention floor because if this nomination mm. fight goes to the convention floor, which is entirely possible, right? Yeah. Um, you got Delegate Dave there who knows these delegates, has personal relationships with them, and also know the, knows the way the process works. If a guy's nickname is Delegate Dave, you got to think he knows <laughs> I hope delegates. he's good at it. <laughs> Unless it's like an oxymoron, like, you know, a big guy they call Tiny, right? right. right. <laughs> well, you know, look, you're right about Cory Booker's campaign. You know, he has he he hired a, um, a friend of ours, Adisu. We all know him. Mm -hmm. He was uh, Adisu was on Hillary Clinton's campaign as his manager, an African-American. Yep. Uh, Another great get, one of the best gets of the cycle. Kamala Harris uh, made uh, announced that she's she brought on uh, twelve women of color to senior positions on her campaign. Her manager is a Latino. Um, Elizabeth Warren's chief of staff is now African American, which uh, you know all of us I, I know have had concerns with the diversity at the chief of staff level on the Hill. So I feel like they're making progress. You yeah. know, I think there's a long way to go. I think especially in the consultant world that there is a long way to go there. Um, and uh, But I think the, the party and uh, these candidates are taking it seriously now. Uh, it's not an afterthought. And, you know, as it relates to winning over the black vote, what, I'm, what I appreciate that I'm seeing from these cam candidates is that they're actually campaigning for black votes now. They're not waiting until two weeks before South Carolina or, you know, typically like in a in a general election, it's the GOTV weekend. They're they're starting now and investing now and going to South Carolina. And hopefully that is also in how they do their uh, paid communications as well. I mean, look, my my math, I think, for candidates, if it's very simple, if I could boil it down, it would be black women have to love you and white women have to like you enough. <laughs> That's true. Right? Like, if you can get a super turnout vote. among black women, and particularly black women over the age of 35 or 40. Mm -hmm. I mean, Hillary Clinton was a nominee in 2016, I think, in, in great part, because middle-aged and senior African-American women never bought the burn, right? Like, while young people were sort of enchanted by Bernie Sanders, the older voters never signed on. And holding on to that core of the Democratic establishment who are traditional voters, they turn people out, they get their friends to go to the polls, they work elections, they campaign hard. Holding on to that constituency of particularly African-American women, you know, 35, 40, up to 65, 70, they're, they're critical yep. for winning. And Doug Jones and Ralph Northam would not likely be in their uh, positions right now if not for uh, African-American women. Absolutely. So, Jamal, this has been fun. Yeah, it was a great time. Thank you so much for joining us on the Thanks, Electables. Jamal. We Thank really you. appreciate it. And good and congratulations to the Hill, and good luck with um, all of that going forward. Anything you want to promote? Yeah. Uh, no, just pay attention to the uh, to the Hill.tv site. And um, I'm on Twitter at uh, Jamal Simmons and on Instagram at Real Jamal Simmons. So uh, follow over there. And I think we'll be watching... Uh, Miss Elrod on one of these cable channels. Which one of these channels are you working for now? MSNBC. MSNBC. That's what I thought. I didn't want to get wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very fun. It's exciting. It's a great family over there. And uh, it's going to be a great perch to watch everything happen in 2019, pertinent to 2020, as opposed to having to go out in the field. <laughs> 
to work for somebody next time. So it's I know. Fun. We'll see each other at the debates and the press sets. Exactly. exactly. Jamal Simmons, you said it all, did it all. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for having Thanks, me. Thanks, Jamal. For AJ and Elrod, I am Doug Thornell. This has been The Electables, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.